So I want parents and kids to know that giving them a little taste of success and, and catching them being good, giving them positive vibes, those are things that set them up for success. You know, when we can empower kids, um, one of the things that I like about, you know, the approach that we've taken for technology is if you can send a vibration to someone's wrists with a rebut, they don't have to rely on someone else calling their email. They feel like I'm able to get myself back on task. The more things you can do like that to empower kids, the better the results we've seen. Welcome to the Parenting ADHD Podcast, where I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHD-aholic, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be talking to Richard Brancaccio, I hope I said it right, the the inventor of the Revive. And we're going to talk all about focusing during virtual learning, something that is a huge challenge for so many of us, my own family included. Thanks so much for being here, Rich. Do you want to start by introducing yourself, let everybody know who you are and what you do? Sure, sure, Penny. Thanks. So again, Rich Brancaccio, you did a, a great job pronouncing the last name. It is not an easy one. Um, I was a psychologist for the school system locally here in the Raleigh area. So was school psych for the largest school system um, for about 10 years. Worked in one or two school systems. I focused a lot on the autism spectrum, um, but I did a ton of casework around ADHD. And uh, several years ago, I just had a, a challenge with a, a couple of students that I couldn't solve um, in terms of redirecting them and helping them to focus. So I came up with an invention. I built it from scratch. And then from there, there was some demand for it. So I built a company around that invention. And uh, we are been doing business for over five years now. We're on our second product and grown from just a one-man band to a couple of people to up to 12 people. So it's been a real adventure. Wow. Yeah, I remember when you were launching it, and it was really exciting. So many different things have come along over the years for ADHD and for autism, too, that haven't necessarily stood the test of time. You know, it's really tough to have something that's going to help a large population of people. And it's amazing that the Revive has done that. And I love that you came from a background of working with these kids. You know, you really get it and really understand what those needs are and what is really appropriate in a school environment um, and what may not have been. You know, I know that you spent some time making sure that this product was not going to be really obvious to peers and things like that. So uh, I think a lot of kids really appreciate that about it as well. Yeah, it was It's really interesting to merge those two worlds together when you bring education and psychology together with technology, because a lot of the things I saw didn't blend the two worlds in harmony, you know, and you had some some neat ideas out there um, for dif- different ways to help kids. But when you bring them into a school environment, everything is just different. You know, if, if mm-hmm. you've never worked with children or you've never worked in a school with children, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. <laughs> um, you. you know, new problems will surface. Kids will always find a way to 
poke a hole in whatever you've left an opportunity for. Um, so it was really helpful to bring some background as far as, hey, things can't be noisy in a school because then everybody gets distracted or things have to be simple to program because teachers are really busy already. So yeah, mm-hmm. it was it was a fun challenge. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about it later in the episode. I want to first get to um, some strategies for parents. We, so many of us are in virtual learning, my own son included, who's a senior in high school, and he has found it especially hard to focus on school at home. It has just been a really huge challenge and virtual learning is just a struggle for so many in a lot of ways. And it's funny, I see some parents who say, this is the best thing ever for my kid. They're so focused. They're getting it done. It's been amazing. And then I see families who say, this is the worst thing ever for my kid. And there seems to be very little in between. And so it's just such a challenge for so many families. But I think even more so when we're talking about ADHD, we already have distractibility And at home, I think there's so many more distractions. This is the place where they have things that they have fun with. This is the place where there's video games and chats with friends and, you know, just a lot of other things to distract that aren't in the school environment. So what can parents do? Well, I've I've noticed the same thing for myself. Um, I'm an adult, you know, who, who, who likely has ADHD, runs in the family, and Throughout the whole pandemic, I've, I've been coming to the office most of the time. I was by myself here, um, but I just can't work from home because, like you said, the home environment, from my school psychology perspective, is an interesting place. Right? One of the reasons that kids with ADHD typically do better in school. Um, I used to hear this a lot, and it can be polarizing. But a lot of the times, we would hear parents go, "Really." My, my child can sit and do that for that long. Or, you know, when we're at home, we, we have a really hard time with homework or with projects or with dioramas or whatever it may be. Um, and you'll get sometimes surprise looks from parents who go, how do you get them to do that? That's amazing. Um, and yes, teachers are miracle, miracle workers. Teachers are rock stars and magicians, but by the very design of school, school is built to be very structured. It's built to be regimented. And, you know, think about the bell system. The bells, you know, go off at certain times. Even in some elementary schools, they, they'll use a bell system. Um, and it's to let kids know what the expectations are from a time perspective. It keeps everybody on track. And when you go home, the goal of your home for most of us, right, it's, it's your Zen place. It's your place you can go relax, let your hair down. It's intentionally unstructured. <laughs> so mm-hmm. when you merge these two worlds together, that is, is exactly the challenge that you just described. You know, whomever's listening to this podcast, it's not just you. It's not just your child. This is most children who struggle with focus are also struggling at home right now. So I think that's really important to identify because a lot of parents right now have a lot of guilt. They have a lot of frustration, a lot of headbutting with their children. Um, I was talking to a group of parents recently and I pointed something out. You usually spend about 45 hours a week face-to-face with your kids during a non-pandemic situation, meaning the waking hours, Monday through you know Sunday with school in session, you get about 40 to 50 hours of good old face-to-face time with, with your kiddos. During COVID, you're getting about 90 plus hours a week of FaceTime. And mm-hmm. too much of a good thing 
can be challenging. So I think, you know, the first thing I wanted to talk to you and your, and your listeners about is it's important to build in some breaks and that learning from, from home is not the same as learning from home, meaning eight hours doesn't work at home. Yeah, for sure. I think in, in your description of the school environment, you pointed out something that's really key, I think, for learning at home, and it's that structure. You know, school is very structured. It's very regimented, as you said, and home is not. And I know that many families have tried to implement some structure at home to help with virtual learning and successfully. I know I know several families who have done that successfully. If you have a kid that works really well with structure, that should be a, a helpful strategy. Yes. Yeah, we've, we've heard a lot of good come with that. And, and I'd love to share a couple of ideas about that. Um, yeah. Because I think that's really the biggest thing for parents. It's the, what's interesting about parenting a child with ADHD that a lot of parents don't realize is it's a really simple job. But being simple doesn't mean it's easy. It's, it's extremely simple, but extraordinarily difficult. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's not a magic formula that goes with this, but the hardest things to do, honestly, are to remember to be consistent yourself with your, you know, normally just with your parenting style, mean what you say, say what you mean. We, we as adults confuse those things all the time. You know, if you don't do this, then this is going to happen. And then inevitably things happen. The doorbell rings, UPS man's at the door, dog's barking, your boss is calling you. um, And you don't come through on your promise, whether it was to do something positive, like we're going to go outside for a break and go ride the bike in the driveway or for, you know, some kind of a consequence where, hey, you're going to get five minutes, you know, earlier bedtime and never happens. So the hardest thing as an ADHD parent, I think, first of all, is to just to hold yourself accountable, right? Because neurotypical kids, I think, have a little bit more bandwidth to be able to absorb the bumps in the road that come with with just typical parenting. But kids with ADHD really need that structure. So when you as a parent, because again, parenting is hard. It's especially hard during COVID. Um, but when you have a bump in the road, you know, you're trying to do your work, let's say for your job, so you don't get fired. You're working from home, trying to help your child focus. You know, when when you don't, deliver those things that you're supposed to deliver, it makes the whole day and the whole experience of COVID really challenging. So one of the things I wanted to talk about that I think is so helpful is, as you said, Penny, consistency. So Mm -hmm. a couple of things people can do if they're not already doing it, set up a visual schedule. It sounds silly, but to have something on the wall for you and your child to look at as a frame of reference especially during learn from home, because this is how it goes for a lot of parents. Okay. Um, why are you here right now? You're supposed to be in class. No, I'm on a break. Are you sure? I thought your break was from 11 o'clock to 1115. No, it's 1115 to 1130. Okay. Um, so then the kids don't have a good picture of, of what they're supposed to be doing. The parents are a little bit confused. If you have more than one child, it gets really crazy, right? Because different schedules start stop times. So put a visual schedule together, put it on the wall in front of your child's work area so that they can look at it, make yourself a copy um, so that you can look at it. And then there's a couple of other things, but I don't want to just pelt you with, you know, facts and information. So let me pause to see if you have any thoughts about that. Penny. 
Yeah, I always recommend to do a visual schedule with your kids because for one thing, it makes it feel more real to them, especially kids who have time blindness, which so many kids with ADHD do. And so just by writing things down, it makes them more concrete. But having that schedule can mean that they go and reference the schedule instead of coming to you in the middle of your work meeting and asking you, when are we doing this? When are we doing that? How much longer, right? And it can be so simple. Like you could just use poster board and some post-its and make a column for each family member and, you know, use the post-its for each event and put them up that way and keep taking them down and reuse that poster board that's behind. You know, we don't have to buy these beautiful family calendars and make these, you know, amazing family walls that we see on Pinterest. It can be really simple, but it's very meaningful to our kids more than we realize. And it really, again, helps to work on that time blindness and that sense of time that is often a big struggle. But you know, if they want something and maybe you're working from home during the pandemic, you can teach them to look at the calendar first and see if you're in a meeting, see if you're available or see who is available if you're both working from home. And they can also see when things are coming up and when transitions are coming up. All of these things that they tend to struggle with, we can really work on with that one thing. And a visual schedule doesn't have to be with pictures. I think a lot of people think that we mean that you have to have a photo or a drawing and um, have it really visual. I think that's helpful for many, many kids to have both text and photos, but you don't have to. You know, that's not specifically what we're talking about. But you're also, again, you're teaching planning and organization with that too. Um, I always teach parents to sit down together once a week and look at the coming week and have your kids be part of that planning process so that they can learn some of those skills that they're really lagging in with an ADHD brain. Yeah, I I think that's great. And I love I love the phrase time blindness because it absolutely, absolutely occurs for so many kids mm-hmm. and for their parents. Um, you know, there's there's something I used to hear a lot when I worked in the school system was um, some parents, um, and I, I don't want to give dads a bad rap, but um <laughs> A lot of the dads that I worked with would often, you know, say, I don't think my child has any focusing issues. And and the other parent, you know, a lot of times the mom would say, well, I think that they do. The teacher thinks that they do. And, and we would hear people say, well, he or she focuses really, really well and can spend like six hours enmeshed in reading about, you know, X or Y or working on this project or playing this video game. So the time blindness thing with along with hyperfocus can really make things, you know, both a, a blessing and a curse, right? It's a superpower if you can harness it the right way, but it yeah. can also make things. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. For my son, it's now or not now. There's nothing else. It's either I'm going to do <laughs> this thing or get this thing right now, or I have no idea when in the universe it's going to happen, which means it's not going to happen. That was a big struggle when he was younger and he still struggles. You know, time blindness is one of the big ones for him. And there's a lot of I'll do it laters right now as a teenager. <laughs> and I'm always asking, okay, when is later? Let's define when later is because otherwise later just goes on into perpetuity, right? So if you schedule things, it just really helps with so much of that. 
And I, you know, I want to add too, it is hard for parents to find the time and even the energy, I have to admit, to really implement these schedules. Um, They don't have to be super strict. Um, Some kids really kind of need that really strict structure, but a lot just more of a, a guideline sort of structure is enough. And so if it's too much as a parent to try to really every 30 minutes, you know, enforcing what's on the schedule and directing this whole thing, especially with more than one kid, you know, it can be more of a guideline, but you can also use tools to help with that. Have kids set alarms. Um, You know, I work from home. And so if I have to get up every 30 minutes and say, hey, you're supposed to be on this class. Hey, you're supposed to be on that class, which is kind of the way it's going right now. It's more difficult, right? It's more difficult for me to get things done. And it feels very much like nagging to your child. So, you know, all of these things really help to alleviate some of that. When we back off, our kids tend to do things more that we want them to do. When we kind of take that pressure off and then you know, by having the structure, we're able to do that and still have things kind of stay on track for the most part. Yeah, I I agree with that. And I think there's two points that you made that I'd love to drive home even further for people out there listening. Um, One thing that you mentioned that was very apropos is the feeling of if it's not now, it's never. So something else that, that you can set up in addition to a visual schedule is a reward system, you know, which can help kids who have a really hard time, especially with kids getting started, you know, where it's, it's, I I don't want to sit down Um, with some of the virtual learning that we're seeing is very live and very structured. Other Mm -hmm. virtual learning in different school districts is very, you know, recorded and very self-guided, if you will. So you can set up a reward system, but as, as you said, Penny, it's really good to tie things to some kind of an immediate goal. I've seen way too many parents' um, reward systems fumble and folly because they, they'll say things like, you know, at the end of this month, it's mm-hmm. September 3rd. So uh, by September 30th, we'll get, you know, more ice cream or we'll do later bedtime. It's got to be almost daily. Something has to be daily for kids with ADHD where they can look to, to the end of that day. And then you can build it further, you know, by the end of this week, make it cumulative by the end of this month. But they need to have any, in a sense of, you know, that they can grasp that reward and it's not too far away. Yeah. The, the other thing that you hit upon was, you know, some of the nagging that takes place, right? That's what I was getting at with the, if you're spending 90 hours with your child, people are going to start to grade on, on one another, whether you're the best parent and best kid in the world, you know, or whether it's less than your best performance that day or that week as a, a parent or a child, you guys are going to start to get frustrated with each other. So do some things, set yourself up for success. There's a couple of different things you can use. You can use just something simple. Like, you know, if the child's on a computer, you can set up a Google calendar to pop up on the screen and say, reminder, it's time to get back to class or it's time to start your, you know, math or whatever it may be at a certain time. So that takes, you know, the weight off of you as a parent and it puts it onto something else. And kids sometimes, all kids you know, will direct blame or, or minimize the value of their parent. My mom was a teacher when I was a child. She didn't know anything. If you asked me when I was seven or eight years old, my brother, same thing. 
no, mom, you don't know. And she'd say, no, I'm literally a teacher in the same grade that you're in right now. I do know. Nope. No, you don't. My, my teacher does it better, mom. I'm sorry. So if you can put the responsibility off of yourself and use technology, so you can use Google calendars, you can use, if you have an Apple watch, if you have a revive, we have a system also that sends a reminder to your wrist. So use technology. There's, there's free resources out there, there's high tech stuff, there's everything in between. Use what's out there. The, the other thing that you hit upon, Penny, I think so important that I don't want to forget is kind of back to square one when it comes to learn home. There's a really funny photo that's uh, somebody emailed me of their child. Somehow they were hanging from their, their desk at home mm-hmm. on their, you know, Zoom call with their class. And this kid's upside down, you know, attending class, looking like a bat hanging upside down. So the work environment is really, really important. And it goes back to what you said, Penny, about the structure that comes in a school. Schools are interesting places. They're, they're kind of sparse and they're, they're not super warm and fuzzy, you know, compared to home. But that's intentional, right? We want a desk that's plain. There's nothing on it. There's no soft chairs you can kind of recline back on and get sleepy. So to, to put my psychologist hat on, the biggest mistake that I think people make is they'll say, I want to make home comfortable for my child. Yeah, if you want to, if you want to do learn from home, you can sit on your bed, bring the computer over to your bed, or you can sit on like our lazy boy chair. Um, in, in my opinion, it's a really big error to do that because when you are at home, you know, your bed and your, your lazy boy, they're designed to be comfortable and you start to get sleepy. Like when you're sitting on the couch and it's nine o'clock at night, your body starts to get cues. Your brain takes cues from your body that, Hey, I should start to wind things down. I'm going to get tired, close my eyes. So when you're trying to learn, your brain's getting conflicting information. You're telling it to, on one hand, listen, learn, execute work. On the other hand, your body's saying, well, I'm leaning back. I got my head on the pillow. I'm used to going to bed when I'm in this position or, you know, this really soft surface. So my point is set kids up in as a school-like environment as you can. Get them a desk. Make sure it's clean, as clean as you can get it with children, as plain as you can get it. Make it organized so everything's there before they, they're supposed to start their class. When they're done with school, you know, air quotes for the day, make sure that they get themselves set up for the next day so that they're ready for, for success. And try to to separate the kids as far as your your living space allows. Yeah, I know so many kids are probably doing it in their bed and it is hard. <laughs> my own included. Yeah. He doesn't want to get up. He's like, "Well, I can just get on Zoom on my phone right here." Not really, yeah. but at that age, it's really hard to to have as much influence, you know, you when they're teenagers and they're in high school, if we don't give them some say in it, then they're just going to push against us. You know, it comes back to that feeling of being nagged and pressured. And when I take the pressure off, then things actually tend to get done more often. I still have to have reminders. I still have to support, you know, and scaffold support. But, you know, I think it's really important to say, this is your school environment. This is what you have to do. I'm here to help you if you need it. And then try to kind of step back, which is really hard, you know. It's really hard to step back because we really want to help our kids succeed. But oftentimes, they need that experience of figuring out how to do it on their own in order to actually be successful. And that's a hard lesson for parents. You know, I came probably about it way too late. And, you know, the more that we teach them to do for themselves and to ask for help when it's needed, the better. 
And, and I think virtual learning is especially hard for our kids to be independent because, again, there's so many distractions at home. If we're allowing them to make their own choices, <laughs> you know, there have to be boundaries, obviously, within that. But, you know, I'm always looking at how do we foster independence, even in really young kids. You know, do you want your work area for school to be in this corner of the living room in front of this window? Or do you want it, you know, back here in this other room where it's more quiet? You know, just giving some choices that both are appropriate gives them a sense of control. And I think that sense of control is so important right now because so much of the world we don't have control over. We have this pandemic. We have to do school at home. We A lot of people are working at home. You know, we don't have any control over that. So kids need more of a sense of control, I think, than even usual to be able to do virtual learning successfully. Yeah, I, and you hit on, on a couple of important points as well. Um, there's a great, what I'll call like a life hack, right? People are always looking for, for how to do things better, smarter, faster. Life hacks are super popular right now. The best parenting hack I think is something we call in psychology, we call it a forced choice system. And you, you alluded to this in what you just said. Um, you want to give kids the feeling that, you know, that they are in control, especially older kids in high school. However, even though they're physically, you know, they, they look like a grown up in, in most cases, they're, they're these big kids, they can drive sometimes, they're still not a grown up yet, right? They're still a kid, if you will, who's learning. Um, and you're still teaching them all these life lessons that teachers are teaching them, you know, academic lessons. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really helpful to provide some bumpers or some boundaries. So what I call a forced choice system means you can say things like, hey, you know, you seem like you're having an off day this morning or a rough morning today. You know, maybe you aren't feeling well, or you went to bed too late. Why don't you pick what you do first today? Do you want to do science? Do you want to work on your social studies or do you want to work on your English project? Which one do you think is best for you? So in their mind, they're going, good, I can do whatever I want. But in reality, you've set them up so that they're doing one of three things that you want them to do for their school. So that's a good blend of giving them a choice, being an active participant in their own life and learning, but also structuring it so that it works for what you need them to do as a parent. Yeah. Something else that I think is is important, um, especially with older kids, I used to help out a lot with something that we called school phobia. You know, meaning kids with anxiety or or for whatever their reason was, they would have a hard time coming to to school physically. You know, back in the days when we used to have physical school, and yeah. one thing that we learned, we we got to train with with one of the preeminent experts in this field. And one of the things that I always remember from my trainings with this person was when you are trying to get children to do something, in this case, you know, get up out of their nice, warm, comfortable bed to start going to virtual school, it can be hard, especially, you know, your kids probably start weighing, you know, the same or more than you when they're in like, you know, middle school and high school. So you try to get this kid out of the bed. It's not like you're picking up a, a five-year-old anymore. So how do you do this? And, and one thing that we, we learned was that setting a really low initial bar is good. So you could say things like, you know, I need you to get up by this time, you know, before school starts and work on things for this long, right? Like if it's an unstructured time or it's a self-guided time, um, I need you to put in at least X amount of minutes or hours for this to start and to bring them up gradually, especially when you're new to virtual school. Um, But it's important to try to not back 
slide from where you are. Um, flexibility is really important, but it's also, we, we've seen really good things happen when you kind of say, look, you know, we, we can't go from doing like three hours of learning per day to like 15 minutes, you know, cause it just makes for really an up and down experience. Mm-hmm. So it's always better to start lower. And, and make sure that, you know, you can kind of build their stamina up because there is stamina that goes along with having to attend. It's way harder to focus on a little computer screen than to focus on a real engaging, you know, visceral experience that is the classroom. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up school avoidance. It's something that we've struggled with for several years, even to some extremes, like trying to jump out of my car on the way to school while I was moving. So it, it's a real challenge. and. I hopefully thought, oh, well, at home, we won't have this issue, but we kind of still do. You know, school is still really challenging for him and and even more so at home, I think. And so we do see kids who are really bristling against it for much of the same reasons. You know, things are hard. People don't understand. Teachers don't understand how much they're trying or how much they're struggling or, you know, a, a Zoom call might be overwhelming if there's times where the whole class is talking um, or, you know, if there's a lot of background noise, if the teacher has some clicking behind her um, while she's doing class, right? There's so many different ways that it can still be an overwhelm sensory, overwhelm cognitively, you know, so it still is an issue, school refusal and school avoidance, even when they're not physically going to the school building, which is not what I would have expected, but it is definitely something that many, many families are struggling with during this time. Well, it's also that they can't, they also can't have it in a lot of cases this year, they haven't met their teachers, so many kids. And what's mm-hmm. been one of my favorite things, um, one of the things that I miss about being an, an active school psychologist working in a school, I'm, I'm full time here at Revive, but one of the things I miss was the connections that you really build and forge with children. And what's interesting is, I think it, for, for all kids, it's important, but I think especially for kids with ADHD, um, it's critical that they build a strong personal bond, a, a, an educational relationship, if you will, with their teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times the teachers, you know, yes, these, these kids in a lot of cases will have a, a, sometimes a rough experience with a teacher who's maybe really overwhelmed because she has two or three or five kids who are all struggling with focus. And that's hard on, on the teacher and the student. But what I've seen work so many times when you have a really you know, patient, understanding teacher who can take these kids aside, you know, metaphorically and also physically and just say, hey, look, I understand that you are having a hard time with this and with that or with that, but I'm here, you know, I've got your back. Like, let's do this together. Let's figure this out. And kids really can develop a beautiful bond with their teachers. And with COVID, you know, we have um, a special education teacher who works with us here. And, you know, we were doing a webinar a couple of weeks back and I asked her, I said, you know, she's, she's an active special education teacher during the work hours and, and works with Revive after school and at night. And I said to her, what's it been like for you being a special education teacher and, and not meeting any of your kids. And she said, Rich, it's been really hard because as much as I try and they try, when you've never physically you know, seen somebody in person and you can't commiserate with them and celebrate with them, it's just a different experience on both sides. So the kids, the kids can feel it, the teachers can feel it. And I think that's what makes this so much more challenging is that 
critical point person for these kids, the person who they feel like, look, you know, this person's got my back and we've got some history in the bank together. They've never even met this person yet in, in their mind, right? Except through a computer screen. Right. So I think that adds to the challenge. So one suggestion that I'll, I'll make to parents out there, and I think most teachers would be open to it, is to just message, you know, your child's teacher or teachers and set up, you know, it won't take more than five or 10 minutes to say, hey, could you do wh- whatever day you have a few minutes during a planning break or prep, could you spend five or 10 minutes just talking with my daughter or my son to meet them and, and let them tell you a little bit more about them and, and what's exciting for them about school, what's exciting for them about you know, their home hobbies and, and what's been hard for them about school and what's been hard for them during COVID. I think it would go a really long way. Yeah, you know, my son's special ed teacher actually reached out to us a few days before school started and scheduled something just for that reason, which was amazing. I was super glad that it happened. And it and it was, okay, we're jumping into this thing. What do you need help with this semester? What can I do to help you and support you? And And it was even more important, I think, at his age, because as a teenager in high school, if it's not something that is going to work for him, it's useless. So if his teacher and I were deciding what his supports he needed and how to go about them, it may not be effective at all. Um, but having our kids in those conversations is so valuable. And, and I found even really young kids will have ideas. And often there's a really good nugget within them. You know, a five-year-old might say something really outlandish, but there's probably a hint of what is really helpful within that. And so often we don't bother to ask them, what could we do to help? What do they need? What do they think might help? Um, And I think that's a really important piece of that too. But to meet the people who are allies and to have that conversation about I'm really good at this. I'm really excited about this, but I'm going to need your help with this is such an important way to set up for success when you're working with people, teachers, and and administrators too in the school. Well, the success part is is really key. So there's two things at work here. Um, And my my favorite phrase is there's an intervention that's been, you know, researched and and proven from multiple scientific journals and, and academic research parties. Um, and what it's called is it's called catch them being good, right? The more you can catch an ADHD mm-hmm. child being good, praise them, celebrate them. Um, it puts them in a better position to try more and to, and with the more you try, it's this positive self-fulfilling prophecy. What happens with these kids in a lot of cases is they've learned, um, and I'm going to say, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it is it's unintentional, right? It's, it's just a byproduct of the, the structure of a school and the requirements of teachers. But a lot of these kids have learned a mindset of, I can't do it. I'm not as smart as everyone else. You know, I'm always getting my name called out. I'm always being embarrassed. You know, Anthony, focus. Anthony, get back to work. Anthony, listen. After a while, you hear your name called out, you know, five, 10, 20 times a day. It really takes its toll on you. And, and that's what I think is important. So there's two things I wanted to drive home for, for parents and for teachers and for the kids themselves. Um, once these kids who generally want to do well, catch a little glimmer of hope and a little taste of success, we start to see these kids want more. They get hungry for it. They start to realize, holy cow, 
I actually can, you know, my, my favorite story. Um, but when we did our first research study on revive, there was a little boy who we still keep in touch with, you know, his mom still keeps in touch with us. Um, he came to me during at the end of the study and, and he said, he said, Mr. Are, are you the guy who invented the revive? And I said, yeah, you know, that, that was me. And I was, I was collecting all of all the prototype units from the study. It was, it was over. And he said, I want to say thank you. And, and it's this little boy. He's in third grade at the time. And he says, I want to say thank you. I said, oh, for what? And he said, well, we've been doing this for, it was a three-month study that we did. He said, we've been doing this for, for a whole bunch of weeks. And before we started this, I thought that, that I was dumb and that I couldn't do it because most of my grades oh. I would get were a D and an F. And I thought that I, I just couldn't do anything. But I've been wearing this thing and now I, I've been getting Bs and I even got an A. And now I feel like I'm, I'm smart and I can actually do it. And I teared up so hard with this kid standing in front of me. And I, I get teared up thinking about it now. But he, that was a really good example of when you give these kids a taste of success, their, their attitude shifts over to, you know what? I have the opportunity right now to focus on my teacher, you know, or I'm, I'm also thinking about like this really cool thing in my head. I'm going to try to focus on my teacher for a little bit, you know, and it's not that ADHD is an optional thing. It's not that kids choose to not focus, but there is certainly opportunity for all of us to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to really hunker down and really try to my best to focus or, you know, Hey, we're at a break in the classroom. You know, we're changing subjects. Now we're going from math to social studies. Um, and I'm in third grade. So we're in the same classroom. Instead of starting to draw or doodle or talk to my friend, I'm just going to, I'm going to really try to wait for my teacher to start and stay focused. So I want parents and kids to know that giving them a little taste of success and, and catching them being good, giving them positive vibes, you know, those are things that set them up for success. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, when we can empower kids, um, one of the things that I like about, you know, the approach that we've taken for technology is if you can send a vibration to someone's wrists with a revive, they don't have to rely on someone else calling their name out. They feel like I'm able to get myself back on task. The more things you can do like that to empower kids, the better the results we've seen. Yeah. And there's even studies to show that the more positive experience you have, it's rewiring your brain for the positive. And conversely, you know, the more negative experiences you have, the more kind of stuck in that negative, not successful place that you are. So there's a lot of brain science that supports that too. Why don't you give us an overview of the Revive? What is it? How does it work? How does it help kids? Sure. So the Revive is kind of like a Fitbit for focus. And it's, it's a smartwatch. It's a wearable. It tells the time. It tells the date. It does everything a watch would do. It looks cool. It fits in classroom or the gym or wherever you are. But what it's doing is it's sending special vibration signals at certain points that are personalized for each child. And we send up the vibration with a message, both, you know, we have the child practice with the parent and also it, it, gives them a visual on their wrist. So when it vibrates, we say, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? If I am, good job. If I'm not, I have to get back to work. That's how it started. Um, and we have you know, special algorithms that change things up so the kids don't get used to the vibrations and special algorithms now in our new device, which is called the Revive Connect, that actually starts to learn the child's needs. You can put their schedule in and they'll start to, start to learn 
that when this child is in math, let's say, they're going to need more vibrations. And when they're in social studies or language arts, maybe they need less. And it, it changes the settings before they get to each subject. But it also can change on the fly because we take input from the kids in real time. So when it vibrates, we say, you know, if you want to, you can tap twice to let it know that you were on task, or you can tap once to let it know you were off task. So it actually, you know, starts to learn historically, but also can make changes in real time as well. And the, the cool part for the kids, the Fitbit part about it is that they get to look along with the parents and, and teachers if you choose to share a login, you know, with the app to the teachers, or you want to send them a PDF report from your phone. Um, but what it's doing is it's collecting all this helpful data to help you make better decisions and your child to feel celebrated and to feel successful. So what it's doing is the the wearable pairs with an app that you download for your phone, and it's giving you some data as a parent to learn, hey, what was my child's average attention span in minutes when we first started wearing this thing? What is it now that we're we're building in more breaks and we started using a visual schedule and we started doing, you know, 15 minute breaks every or five minute breaks every 15 minutes. Um, it shows you about the on task off task ratios, meaning, you know, what percentage of the day by this self-report is my child spending on task versus off task. And we look at things like fidgeting, right? So how fidgety is my child and when are they fidgeting? And then what it's doing, mm -hmm. that's kind of cool. We show you graphs and you can look to see, you know, yourself, if you see some trends or patterns or correlations of, they seem to be really fidgety here, but they're also really focused when they were fidgeting. So that's interesting. What were they doing? What were they fidgeting with? But the cool thing that we do for parents now is if we actually detect patterns and trends, we'll, we'll send you almost like Facebook has that little uh, notification that tells you, hey, you know, you've got a, a new you know, friend request or a new you know, update on your, on your wall or whatever. What we're sending to parents is, did you know that when your daughter, Alexandria, was able to fidget for 20 minutes or more before social studies, which is midway through the day, her attention span was actually six minutes longer on average than on days when she didn't get that opportunity? Or did you know that for your son, Jackson, when he took 3,000 steps or more before 1 p.m., on average, we saw a 20% increase in his on-task focus rate. So it's just giving parents information that they can use to help their children and make better decisions. And also gives, you know, teachers some information that's helpful as well. That's amazing. It's amazing how much data can come out of that. You know, when you, it's so hard to like send different tools to school, all fidgets and different things and to know what's actually helping and not helping. But now there's something that can give you some data and help you to determine that really valuable. It's amazing what technology can do. And a lot of people are afraid of it. But this is, you know, something that's really helpful to kids. So why not embrace technology? You know, so we, as adults, yeah. we use technology. Why do we not want our kids? Um, and I understand, you know, too much screen time and all of those things. But there are different technologies that can really improve their quality of life. And I think Revive is one of those. And, you know, we just need to embrace technology and really understand. I don't think people understand how much we can get from it. You know, the new Revive Connect, there is a ton of data. There's a ton of feedback for the child um, at different times. You know, I mean, there's just so much to it. It's really amazing. Yeah, thank you. And what, 
one thing that you hit on that's interesting is the screen time aspect. And we were really careful. Um, we, we talked to a lot of our version one customers when we built our new one. And we originally, this is kind of like a VH1 behind the music here, but we originally were, were building more of a video game, like a fun aspect to it. Um, but a lot of parents in schools said to us, you know, hey, we don't want more screen time necessarily. So can you gamify it without actually having them play a game? Yeah. We said, sure. Um, and the U.S. Department of Education said the same thing. So they funded um, our development of the Revive Connect. And, and we, they, were, they were really interested in the gamification, but they also didn't want it to be super you know, gamey like an Xbox or something. So what we wound up mm-hmm. doing was we have little badges that'll pop up that kids, it's kind of like, I call it like a digital sticker. You know, it's the modern day sticker from when you and I were kids. Yeah. Penny. So we have all these fun badges that'll, that'll come up. We have animations. Like if you, you know, have a certain percentage increase day over day or week over week, you have some rocket ships that'll, you know, blast off or some balloons or confetti. Um, so we just, we try to make it a fun experience. The kids love to see how many steps they're taking. They like to see all the other metrics that go with it. But for the parents and the teachers, it's good to be able to actually, as you said, get some data, right? Because when you're a parent, the first thing you say is, well, how, how off task is my child? You're saying that there's a, a challenge or you know, a concern here. Uh, well, can you give me some data? And a lot of times schools have a hard time giving data or parents have a hard time giving data to the schools. But this is a, just a unique platform to collect some data, to share with other people, to try to you know, use technology to drive positive outcomes for kids. Yeah, so amazing. It's such a great story for you to come from being a school psychologist to an inventor and really supporting, being able to support a lot more kids than you just saw in one school or one school system is really remarkable. Thank you. Yeah, that's what that's what made the changeover easier. I used to evaluate about a hundred kids a year, you know, face-to-face psychoeducational evaluations. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I knew I would really miss that. And, and I would, you know, work with lots of other kids who I wasn't evaluating. Um, that was challenging, but we've helped over the last five years or so. We've helped tens of thousands of kids now. So I, I, I relish in a different kind of, of positive vibe. You know, I, I know we're helping, I'm still helping kids. Yeah. It's just, I, I do miss, you know, the face-to-face bond, but it's been a really fun experience, you know, doing something, I guess, on a broader level. Yeah, such amazing stuff. And You've given us a lot of great insights and strategies for virtual learning as well. And I really appreciate that. And I know the parents listening appreciate that too. Um, For everyone listening, you can get links to the Revive, to Rich's website, social media. They will all be in the show notes. And those show notes will be available to you at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 110 for episode 110. And with that, I want to thank you again, Rich, for being here and sharing some of your time. And we'll end this episode. Penny, thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. Big fan of you. And as your parents are are looking for resources, as you said, if they go to the link at your website, we have a lot of great free information that they can get from the Revive Tech website. Um, A lot of free downloads and and things, just go to the blog section. And we've really tried to build something that helps to support parents and just provide information through these really tough times. Thanks so much for having me, Penny. It was a real pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, parent coaching, and mama retreats 
at parentingadhdandautism.com. 